Hello, everyone. Welcome to the California Association of Tactical Officers podcast, where we discuss a variety of SWAT-related topics. We believe tactics are a science, and the art is in how we apply those tactics. My name is Marcus Sprague. And I'm Brent Stratton. In today's episode, we have a very special guest. Colonel Tim Anderson has played a variety of key roles with Cato for many years. His experience with LAPD SWAT, combined with his experience in the Marine Corps, has afforded him unique learning and leadership opportunities. He's also one of the founding members of Field Command, who is responsible for creating a 40-hour tactical science course, the first of its kind in our profession. We're going to tap into Tim's vast experience to discuss the keys to his success, lessons learned, and have a few laughs along the way. Tim, it's an honor to have you with us today. For those of us who don't know you, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, Marcus. I, uh, I kind of had a t- dual-track career. I was on active duty for four years, and when I got back from Vietnam, I applied for LAPD and was accepted, believe it or not. And so I joined LAPD in September of 1970. I was with the department for 20 and a half years. I remained in uniform my entire career except for a small tour in the chief's office and one year as an adjutant. And my 15 years of that, I was a SWAT operator for almost five and a half years. And the balance of that time, I was a canine supervisor and the supervisors at that time, there's five supervisors. One's the trainer, and the other four of us were SWAT guys. So that accounted for 15 years of my career. And then one other tour that I had was interesting. I was uh, with the Anti-Terrorist Division assigned to the FBI. So that basically accounted for the, uh, for the time with LAPD. But I also did a, a dual track in the Marine Corps. Uh, once I got off probation... In, in uh, L.A., I decided that uh, I wasn't quite sat- satisfied with my four years of active duty, so I inquired about the reserve and found a place I liked, and I went back in the Marine Corps Reserve, and I finished that tour with 30 years of service. Uh, during that period, I, was, uh, I commanded two battalions. I was the chief of staff of a Marine Air Ground Task Force. I was the operation officer of a MEB. Um, I did a tour with Navy Spec War Group 1 down in Coronado, and so almost all of my time was operational, and I was an airborne officer, and I was a Marine Corps jump master. So a uh, full 30 years, and uh, really enjoyed it, and that kind of culminated uh, the end of my uh, LAPD career in May of 2000, and my Marine Corps rear career on 1 February uh, 1997. So, Tim, we've talked a few times over the years, and you have addressed uh, the strategic leadership program as well as uh, multiple people in Cato about some of the leadership challenges you face. So um, I would, if you could, could you share with us uh, one of those leadership challenges that you faced? Uh, yes. Let me, uh, let me start with a Marine Corps uh, challenge that I faced as a commanding officer. And the first, comm- the first battalion I commanded was 3rd Anglico which is an airborne forward air control unit uh, and naval gunfire spy unit. So it's very officer heavy. When I took over this command, uh, to say that training was kind of lackluster would be a fair statement. And so one of my first goals was to make the training relevant and more intensive for for the members of the command. And... I had an operations officer position, which is a Marine Corps major's position, which was vacant. 
So I knew Sid Heal, who was a uh, retired as a commander from L.A. County Sheriff, and he was also in the Marine Corps. At the time, he was a warrant officer three with 114 in San Bernardino Valley, which is an artillery battalion. So I needed to fill my operations officer's billet, and the best man for the job unequivocally was Sid Heal. And, uh, but Sid Heal was just a warrant officer three, and this was a major's billet. So I called Sid immediately upon assumption of command, and I asked him uh, what he was doing, where he was. He confirmed he was one with 114. So I said, well, effective immediately, you're with 3rd Anglico, put in your papers, I want you here at our next drill, and you're going to be my operations officer. He jumped at the chance. So he showed up at the unit on the first drill, and I walked over and showed him his desk, and I said, you are now my operations officer. And he goes, I cannot be an operations officer because this is a, uh, this is a major's billet, and I'm a chief warrant officer three. I said, well, okay, I can handle that. You're the assistant operations officer, and I'm not going to hire an operations officer, so get to work. My commander's guidance to you is, I want you to evaluate our training. I want it more intensive. I want it more relevant. Fix it and come and tell me when you've got a plan together. And he turned out to be absolutely phenomenal. But there was another challenge with that. Anglico is very officer heavy. The battalion commander is a lieutenant colonel, but I have uh, staff officers that are uh, majors. And there's just some majors that would have a heartburn working for a chief warrant officer three. So I pulled my staff together. And I said, okay, gentlemen, Sid Heal is now my, my uh, operations officer, is a chief warrant officer three. If any of you can't work in, under those conditions, see me. Uh, we'll find you another billet somewhere. But uh, no further discussion required. Uh, and he is getting to work right now. And laid down, laid down those guidelines and walked away, and we turned out to be phenomenal. The program that Sid put together was outstanding. And then my second battalion uh, was the Light Armored Infantry Battalion. It's an LAV-25 weapon system. And all of a sudden, we, we had an announcement in the reserves that the commanding officer for that battalion is open, and they're standing it up. Now, it's a new weapon system, and nobody in the reserves had the, had the requisite skills to command it. So the, the division headquarters, there's five companies. They, they stood up two companies ahead of time because they were on the East Coast, which uh, the commanding officer was going to inherit. And then the commanding officer would stand the three companies on the West Coast up when he was, when he was picked. Well, I put an application in for that, and they selected me to be the commander. So I immediately stood up my staff in California and then three or four months after I did that, I went back for my first commander's visit to uh, my, my, uh, my company that had been pre-selected by division, and that was at Fort Detrick, Maryland. Now, I'd always heard halfway decent things about this company commander who was a Marine Corps major. But I got back there on a Friday, and by Sunday morning, I had determined that this guy was a train wreck. He was not good. He was pretentious. He wasn't uh, going to classes for his uh, skill set, which is LAV-25. 
And uh, he was not doing the job a company commander should be doing. So I took a close look at his first sergeant. And his first sergeant was a psychophant for this guy. Neither one of them was independent. They, were, they had the same mindset. And the first sergeant, his claim to fame was he put on the best Marine Corps birthday ball anybody's ever seen. I also asked about the XO, the assistant commander. And he just got off active duty and was very, very weak. So I wasn't quite sure how, how far my uh, authority extended, but I relieved both of them on Sunday morning, or all three of them on Sunday morning. I had them transferred to the Class 3 status, which is a non-pay status, and I had them escorted off the base. And I picked one of the company commanders there as a temporary CO. And then I got on a plane and came back to California. Uh, I never received any pushback at all from division. And interesting enough, there was an active duty lieutenant that uh, came into the, uh, the company when it was stood up. And he was so disheartened after the third month, he dropped out and went to a non-pay status because he didn't want to work with this company commander. Well, the information on this relief went all over the East Coast like lightning. We received a call from this lieutenant, said, I want to come back, and I want to come back. I'm sorry, he was a captain. I misspoke. He was a captain. He says, I want to come back, and I want to come back as the company commander. And I hired him on the spot on the telephone. He turned out to be phenomenal. So it was the right guy for the right job, and the cap the major and the first sergeant and the captain that I inherited were just not suitable, not doing the right job. So I relieved them on the spot. Now, what's interesting is I returned them to the class three status, which is a non-pay status. I subsequently found out that as a battalion commander, I could relieve them, but I couldn't transfer them to class three. But the fact that I did it, uh, division overlooked it. They stood by it and it's, and it, and it, uh, it, uh, worked out well. So, uh, that's an example of, uh, Square pegs, round hole that needed to be relieved. As far as that translation to uh, law enforcement, very similar problem. You can go in and inherit someone else's unit, and you didn't have the opportunity to pick any of those personnel. And then you have that challenge, right, of how you change the culture um, of that unit when it's been entrenched by another leader. And then some people will make that change and want that change. Some people will not want to change, and then others will want to change but maybe be incapable Yes. Of making that dramatic. Well, it, com it comes down for the commanding officer to pick the right individual. And, you know, an example of where that did not occur was Rampart Division, which everybody's heard about, Mac and Perez. That was a disaster for LAPD. And the captain, there's two captains in LAPD PD Division. The captain three who owns the division, and then there's the captain one who owns patrol. The captain one that owned patrol was a very fine officer. He was one of my partners in anti-terrorist division as a sergeant. And then he made lieutenant. And when he was promoted to captain, they put him in Rampart Division, which had this ongoing problem with their gang unit or their crash unit. And Mac and Perez were running berserk. He inherited it, but they'd never he'd come from uh, select positions where everybody in there, like anti-terrorist division, where everybody is AJ squared away. And they put him in uh, this patrol division with no training, uh, no experience in command, 
and he inherited this problem, and it, it damn near killed him. Uh, he just he didn't know how to handle it. I'm not sure how long it took for him to realize what was going on. But uh, the captain three of the division, after this, after this thing exploded, he committed suicide. And the captain one, Rich Moraz, he's been devastated the rest of his life. And he goes around doing presentations now about it, which I really give him credit for. But the thing that the department did wrong is, and this is in law enforcement as opposed to the military. In the Marine Corps, when you were a first, uh, first get out of basic school as a second lieutenant or officer candidate school, whichever you go through, you go through a six-month uh, basic school at, at Quantico, Virginia to teach you how to be an officer, and they start developing your skill sets. And then after you've been in, you're up around the captain's rank, uh, tentative for major, they start looking at you for uh, amphibious warfare school. Following that, you go to command and staff college. If you're somebody that's in that, that seems to be qualified for flag rank, which is general rank, you go to a war college. There's three of those war colleges, Army, Navy, and Air Force. And um, so they really train you how to step in as an officer and what your requirements are. We don't do that in the civilian law enforcement. Uh, we pin a, pin a set of stripes or bars on you, and we assume that you have the skill sets. And Rich Moraz was completely blindsided by what he ran into on Rampart. So there's some lessons learned uh, that we could take from the military. And it's changing that culture that we have in the police department and putting people in the right jobs. And the other thing we don't do a lot of times in law enforcement is we don't we don't try and grab very skilled people for promotion. They get into positions where they feel very comfortable, they love it, like SWAT, uh, Intel, you know, various jobs like that, detective. And nobody, nobody, nobody counsels them. Nobody pulls them along and says, you really need to be promoted. So the military does a very good job of that. In fact, they demand that you go for promotion. We don't do a good job out of in law enforcement. I've never met a canine officer that said, I want to get out. They don't exist. Um, we have one canine officer that we brought into canine when I was there. And subsequent on retirement, he is now a commander. And by all accounts, he is an outstanding commander. And if he had stayed in canine all these years, um, what a waste of talent. You'd have missed out on all that. Oh, absolutely. So that kind of, go ahead, Brent. I was going to ask, how can Cato help to develop those type of things? Ultimately, that's as I sit here, that's what I want. I want us to, to have the people that are listening to this podcast, the people that are coming to these classes, I want them to, to feel like they're being taught and they're being trained on how to think critically, how to, how to develop and lead their teams and their own uh, departments to be able to move, you know, California law enforcement, but law enforcement, the profession as a whole. How can, how can Cato help to make sure that, that we're doing that? Well, I think what Cato has really done a phenomenal job of. Last three years, we have really improved our training. And I mean, phenomenally uh, improved our training. Very high caliber. I know that uh, for the gas instructors course, we just received an attaboy from an assistant chief or deputy chief, I'm sorry, for San Francisco PD that just absolutely loved the training. As a matter of fact, they liked it so much they're bringing Cato back to do some more training. Um, Cato has done a wonderful job with their classes, and I think our challenge now is using our regional rep program 
to start reaching out to these departments. Uh, we have a lot of departments in Northern California, you know, some in mid California that don't have the money for the training. Uh, they don't have access to it. We need to go out and service these people and reach out to them and say, hey, let us bring this to you. We've got uh, federal funding that can be used, this type of stuff. So I think Cato's on the right track and our regional rep reps getting out there and really pushing it. Our resource library is the best library for tactical, tactical operations documentation I've ever seen. I mean, it's phenomenal. And every single member has access to that. So that's, that's what we need to do is really reach out, get members of the department that would like to listen and start getting these smaller agencies involved. The other side of the coin is, like when I was on LAPD, I'd never heard of Cato. So reaching into these larger departments, now San Francisco is a fairly good sized agency, but we need to reach into them and say, hey, we have this to offer up. And the training that Cato gives right now is on par or better than what LAPD does. So I think that uh, I think that that's a direction we could go and uh, really, really not only promote the culture in law enforcement, but um, you know improve our leadership skills and so forth. What do you think? So, uh, uh, gentlemen like yourself, you've been through uh, policing from the '70s, the '80s, the '90s, 2000s. Even when you retired, you've stayed very active with Cato, teaching classes. Um, you teach uh, critical incident thinking and development, and you teach that all over the country. You've done these type of things. Where do you see uh, tactical operations in our country or in California right now? Where do you see us in the short term? Where do you see us in a few years? I'm not asking you to look into a crystal ball and predict things, but you've seen a lot. I mean, you've seen you know 40 years worth of tactics and development. Where do you see us going? Well. It comes down to the culture, and uh, we're so, now. My 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 number is SWAT as a SWAT officer is one hundred and thirty. So I'm 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 pretty pretty far into you know the the history of it, um, and I can tell you that the tactics and the equipment and the skill sets you have now is full so far superior to what we had because we didn't we didn't have the experience we didn't have you know, the equipment didn't exist. We've come so much farther. But I think what we need to do is develop a culture where we put the right people in the right job. I know one SWAT team right now has six sergeants on it and reportedly the worst group of sergeants they've ever had. And, uh, you know, one of the reasons is none of them were SWAT policemen. So this idea of being a SWAT cop, getting promoted, and then not going back into that skill set, if you will, because you've been there before, is ridiculous. The idea of putting new officers, new new supervisors in a position like that, where they've never they've never been, they've never they don't even have the basic skills and expect them to survive is wrong. So where the military really does a good job that I think law enforcement could follow is we have military occupational specialties. And as a general rule, you remain in that specialty. The only time that you become a generalist is when you make general officer. So all of our lower ranks and so forth, uh, they focus on those skill sets and they stay in them. A lot of times in law enforcement, uh, SWAT sergeant or SWAT policeman gets promoted, he gets sent right to patrol. And then his chances of getting back into SWAT are limited. I'll give you one example. 
Mayday 2007, LAPD. One of the best operators we had on our department was Mike Hillman. And he was a deputy chief at the time in charge of Operation Central Bureau. Mayday 2007 is an annual event. It is huge in our city. Well, he had rubbed elbows with uh, an assistant chief that probably wasn't on good terms with. And this assistant chief left the department, but right before he did, he transferred Mike Hillman to West Los Angeles. West Los Angeles is a great place. But you have Pacific Palisades, Venice, all this. It is not the high speed of the department. They brought a deputy chief into Central Bureau, which has command of Mayday event. It was so poorly planned that it turned into a significant detriment for the department because they had marchers that marched into uh, MacArthur Park. And if you know any history behind it, it was just awful. Well, the lawsuits and the uh, litigation from that event cost our city over $14 million. And we had the right man on the job that could handle it, but he's transferred to West Los Angeles. Now, the president of the ACLU said that if Deputy Chief Hillman had run the Mayday event, it would be a non-issue because everything would have been run perfect. So I look at that and I go, what is our best operator doing in West Bureau? It's because an assistant chief wanted to transfer him there. And I bet our city could do a lot of work with that $14 million. So it's putting the right person in the right job. And that's a culture I see we need to develop in civilian law enforcement. It's very hard to do because our focus on promotion does not always promote the right person. And we suffer a lot because of it. And this is a great example from one of the finest police departments in the world. And we completely messed up on May Day. And the, the uh, consequences for the city were significant from, from a financial standpoint. So I hope that it does goes back to what you're talking, round peg, round hole. Yep, round peg, round hole, square peg, square hole. So and that's a, a great reference to the Mayday Report, which is published and it's in the Cato Library. Yes, it and is. And it is uh, lessons learned. As a matter of fact, if you go through that, it's a pretty easy read. And uh, I had an opportunity to actually have Mike Hillman come and talk about that report that he had authored and was part yes, of Yes, that. that's interesting. And you brought that point up. As soon as Mayday occurred, the chief at the time relieved the chief that managed Mayday, or Central Bureau Command, and handled May Day. And the first thing he did is he reached out and brought Mike, brought him right back downtown, and had him stand up a division, a new division on how to train our command officers. And Mike was assigned the responsibility for that May Day investigation, which would not have happened if he had been there running it. Sure. So you look at it and you go, wow, what were we thinking? Thank you, Tim, for being with us. We're running out of time, but we wanted to make sure... Uh we at least got a chance to hear a couple of your stories and, and some of those principles that still apply to us today and really the, the sole, sole challenges we face even now. Well, they haven't thank, changed. Thank you very much. I think Kato has really stepped up to the plate and has got some great things they can do. And, uh, and thanks for letting me, letting me meet with you.